We're going to be looking at Abraham, who's called really on Father's Day. I think it's great because it's, he's the father of faith. Genesis 15, 1 through 21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what shall you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am, I, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and there will be aff they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and <clears throat> afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet completed. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give you this land from the river of Egypt, the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and Kenizzites and Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So this is the story of us. God has made now a choice. This is Genesis chapter 12 on. is a story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And God has now chosen one man and one woman, Abram and Sarah. And the question is why? Why did God choose Abram and Sarah? I mean, there's been a great debate within Judaism, within Christianity, some, and even within Islam, that all three Abrahamic faiths look back to Abram for various reasons and give various reasons why God chose Abraham. But I'll tell you, when you read the text in Genesis, there ain't a reason. None. Actually, there might be some good reasons not to have called Abram and Sarah. First of all, their age. He was 75 when he was first called. Uh and childless. And she was, you know, past her prime, I would say, in terms of bearing children at that time. And then later on, Abram himself, uh, let's say he wasn't chivalrous, okay? Chivalry may, was in a bad way with him. 
uh, because he gives away his wife twice. <laughs> Here, take my wife, uh, because of fear over uh, being hurt by Pharaoh or by King Abimelech, all this stuff. It's like, whoa, what's going on? I thought, no, he's not the hero of this story. No. So you could say, hmm, why would God choose Abram and Sarah? And the answer is going to be sheer grace, that he would choose anyone and that he chose them. You can add into even the, another ugly story, and I've just recently learned, you know, kind of appreciated just how horrible it is. Um, I read it as, you know, Hagar and, is being used, but then, I mean, this is called total exploitation of someone. This is not consent by any means. We will not use all the words you could use about that story, and yet that's what Abram and Sarah decide to do to try to have a child. All of these things, this is, but yet God chooses them. So what we're going to look at here in Genesis 15 are these three. The questions and doubts that Abraham has, the assurances and answers that God gives, and finally the differences this all makes. So this is a story, and it is um, probably something that you kind of go like, what is all going on? But it's a story of the omnipotent, transcendent, beyond all, the God of gods, above everything, beyond the universe, not just within the universe, who comes and to a certain person in a finite, tangible, physical way so that Abram sees and hears and knows and communicates with God. Um, you might go like, well, that, that happens all the time, by the way. Right now it's happening. And you go like, what? Yeah, because you see, if you're hearing the word of God, if you read the word of God, it's tangible. They're words, right? And your ears are hearing it. It's not just that your inner spirit is somehow connected, but you as a physical creature are being communicated by a God who works within his creation and comes to be known by you. This happened throughout time. The, the prophets would say the word of the Lord came to, and they didn't mean an idea or a concept or some kind of like that they were attuned you know, by like a radar satellite dish to the divine spirit somewhere. It's the fact that God spoke and God showed up. At times it scared the living daylights out of someone like Isaiah, but God spoke and was there and fully present for these prophets, and then they proclaimed God's word. And each of these things that we see, and today we see one, and you can uh, trace them throughout the Old Testament, but each one is a foreshadowing and a pointer that looks to the ultimate display of God's presence among us in the person of Jesus Christ. They are called theophanies. That's the theological jargon. Theo, God, Phanos, appearance. God appears. God shows up. Boy, did he show up for Pharaoh, or to, uh, excuse me, Abraham. And here he shows up. He shows up when Abraham doubts. He's doubting. Now, you might go like, why is Abraham showing up, or why is God showing up to Abraham right now? Um, the chapter before, Abraham has been now wandering 
He's a Bedouin. He owns nothing in the promised land, in this land of Canaan. He owns nothing. He is more or less at the mercy of others who actually own the property, are in charge of this land, all these other groups around him. And in the last chapter, Lot gets into a lot of trouble. Lot is a lot of trouble. That's Lot. That's his nephew. And so he ends up having to fight all these kings of the land to rescue Lot. He comes back. And I would be afraid because, well, things are never over once you make a battle like this in the ancient Near East. Reprisals could come. Retribution could come. Abram is <laughs> he's not that strong. So he's afraid. And he's also going like, uh, nothing's really changed, Lord. I've been doing, you know, you promised. And this is why in Genesis 15, 1, God says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham goes, okay, sure. This is, well, this is actually what he says. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Come on, is this guy who's not even really that closely related, he's the one that's going to inherit? How are you answering your prayers? Because basically like a little kid, Abraham's going like, but you promised. And he's right. God had promised. Genesis 12, God said this. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house in the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Notice God promises to a 75-year-old Abraham and his wife things that seem absolutely impossible at the time, and God is kind of majors in that <laughs> time and again. And here, he promises him a land, he promises him an offspring, and he promises that he will be a blessing to the nations. And at this point in time, in Genesis 15, nothing, nothing so far. And so God responds to Abraham's doubts about these promises. And he says, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look to the heavens. Number the stars, if you can. That's how great. You, basically God is saying, you are the person I'm using to bring the blessing I've always wanted for all of people in all times and all places that I wanted, that I gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to be fruitful and multiply. And now that's going to happen through you. You're going to do that. And then it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then God says, and by the way, the land that you're walking on, I'm going to give that to you. Just two verses after it says, Abraham believed God and credited him as righteousness, Abraham again doubts. Doesn't take long. But this time it seems like the doubt is not so much, okay, God, I don't trust you. It's maybe a, okay, God, I don't trust me. How am I supposed to take possession of this land? I don't think I'm up to this. I don't know if I'm going to rise to that task. And God responds to that as well. So what do we learn about this? You know what? God is open to people who doubt. 
He has no problems with your doubts. In fact, he would rather have you doubt with him and ask him and struggle with him than not to. He doesn't say to Abram in this passage, how dare you doubt me? I am, you know, kind of like Wizard of Oz. Do you remember? I am the great and powerful Oz. Don't look at the man behind the curtain, right? Um, but no, God doesn't do any of that. Instead, he is patient with Abram and his doubts. He will not let you stay, though, within your doubts. He calls you from them at the same time. You know, one of the most famous stories in the Bible about someone who doubts is doubting Thomas, right? It's in the Gospel of John at the end. It's the week after Jesus rose from the dead. The week that night, Jesus shows up in a locked room to all the disciples, but Thomas was missing for whatever reason. We have no idea why. Um, but a week later, and he says to the rest of the disciples, unless I see the nail holes in his hands and uh, the spear, I will not believe. He is like refusing to believe. He's more insistent in his doubt than anything else, right? He's almost sure of his doubts or cynicism or skepticism. And then God shows up. Jesus shows up again the next week and does not scold him. He doesn't say, how dare you, Thomas? I, you don't trust me, blah, 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 nothing. What he does is say, behold, you know, come here, touch. Here I am. Stop doubting and believe. He doesn't leave him in his doubts. He doesn't say, keep up with your skepticism. And then he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Okay? You know, so often, like I think I said last week as well, there are people who say, oh, you just seem to have it so easy. You, you just believe. It, it's easy for you. It's not for me. I'm skeptical. I just have a hard time. It's almost like they say it with a uh, sense of humility. Like, oh, you know, I just struggle with anything to believe anything. And as if there are special categories of people who easily believe things, the gullible is one way they might say, and those who have a hard time believing anything, the skeptical. All right? Actually, there is only one category of people. <laughs> We're all in that together. And it is a miracle anyone believes at any time, according to the Bible. It's not something that some have it easier or some innate ability to believe. In fact, you know, the book of Romans, Paul says <clears throat> in Romans 10, that faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. You've got to hear that first. But then in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, I think, uh, 11, uh, Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you naturally do. It takes the gift of the Spirit to bring anyone to faith. The reality is everyone has doubts. Everyone has doubts. No one is above having those types of questions. So when a church would emphasize, and I'm sorry to say we've got some in our society and probably have always been around, you've got to believe, you've got to have absolute certainty, you better not, and who refuse to let anyone, especially those young kids, you know, ever raise a question or a doubt, they're actually doing a disservice. It's a disservice. Timothy Keller put it this way. He says, churches in which it is unsafe to doubt create skeptics. 
It's like, well, they never let me question. I never had an idea. I mean, I was just told, just believe. And they acted as if my questions were terrible, and they walk away. An example of this, sadly, is um, Steve Jobs. He was a member, and he was a member of a church that in, during confirmation classes in seventh and eighth grade, he was asking questions about how, why is there so much suffering in the world? And the pastor out in California in that area, oh, just, you know, don't doubt, just believe, God, you know. And he had deeper questions, and he walked away. Hmm. Churches in which it is unsafe to doubt create skeptics. Now, there are others in our society that have made doubt a virtue. You know, it's like, oh, who believe that anyone who has any certainty about anything is just naive or a fool. They are absolutely certain about their doubts. Did you catch that? They found certainty by doubting. <laughs> Um, so our secular cultures that made doubt into a virtue, too many churchy cultures make just not ever doubting into the virtue. The Bible is neither of those. Neither of those. Neither of those are biblical. The God of the Bible understands your doubts. He doesn't scold you for them, but he won't leave you in them. And that's what happens here with Abram in chapter 15. And we find that in the answers and assurances of God. So God tells Abram, he said, bring to me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And you're going like, what the heck is going on here? Right? It appears Abraham gets it because he brings them and he cuts the animals in half except for the birds. I know this is a gory picture. There's a reason for that. It's weird. And you're going like, I don't, this is why I never read the Old Testament, because I just don't get it. But it's so consistent with ancient Near Eastern culture, if you kind of study a bit. What's going on here is Abraham realizes God is enacting a covenant. In fact, the word is used here. And the word to uh, make a covenant, the Hebrew could be translated to cut a covenant, because that's exactly what you do. You cut. Now, we have very few covenants in our culture, okay? We have agreements, we have exclusionary, all that stuff. A covenant is different. A covenant, this type of covenant is binding. Like, the, the, the best version of a covenant in our society is a marriage, okay? A marriage covenant, okay? That's the one that we have, um, but... We don't usually cut animals in making that covenant. Uh, did you guys a couple of years ago cut some animals and walk through them? No, I hope not. That would have been a weird, weird wedding. All right, yeah. That's because we're in a written culture, okay? Aren't you glad about that, Kenzie, that we wouldn't do that? That's not part of the biblical practice. He wants to do that? Oh. Okay, <laughs> we'll talk. Um, we're a written culture. You know how we create a covenant is we write down, you sign a marriage certificate, right? And you deposit it with the state. It's pretty well binding. It's over. It's done. It's finished. You got witnesses for that, all that stuff. That's how we 
cut or make a covenant. But in an oral culture like the ancient Near East, what do you do? They didn't write stuff down like this. Okay? What you do is you enact. You dramatize the covenant. And here you dramatize what happens if you break the covenant. What happens, what you're promising if something goes bad. We get this also in a passage to help you understand it. It's uh, in Jeremiah 34. God says to his people through the prophet Jeremiah, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between the parts. Get it? In other words, what happens is the person who goes between these pieces, these animals, whatever they are, saying, let this happen to me if I don't keep my word. Yeah. Is that amazing? It's very vivid. So the next time that you have a remodeling project on your house, you might say, hey, let's do something a little more traditional and ancient. I don't want to do a written covenant, you know. Uh, let's do this. You might get better response, right, if they know what's going to happen to them if they don't keep the agreement. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? As long as I don't have to go through the pieces, right? Let them do it. So in the Middle East, in the ancient Near East, there are a number of different covenants. Some are between equals. They're called parity covenants. This one is, called, is similar to a suzerainty treaty. I've, you probably never heard of the word suzerain. Uh, suzerain is a king or a vassal treaty. Um, Abraham's the vassal. God is the suzerain in this treaty. They're not equal. You are not equal with God. You're not even close, right? And in that kind of a covenant, what happens is it's the vassal that walks between the pieces and makes a promise. The king doesn't have to do anything. The king's in power. He stays in charge. He runs the show. And Abraham probably was believing, oh, that's what you're going to do, God. You want me to make a covenant with you. And if I make a covenant with you, I walk between the priests, I make a vow, and I say, I'm going to believe you no matter what. Then you will. Did you get it? That's called religion. Okay? And that's what a lot of people think Christianity is, too, by the way. A lot of people think this is what it is. Okay, I do this, I do that, I make a vow, I do what's right, I declare my faith, I say I believe, and then God will respond to that. That's not the kind of agreement we have here. In fact, what's shocking in this passage, absolutely unheard of, never been done in the Middle East at that time, what is so counter to every other culture in the Middle East right here in Genesis 15 is that Abraham falls into a deep sleep and God is the one who speaks the promises and it is God who walks between the pieces as a torch, a blazing torch and a smoking pot. Now, those two words are pretty hard to translate. Um, I looked them up, and the word tanur, the Hebrew word tanur, means basically the billowing smoke that comes out of a, well, my barbecue, for instance, and <laughs> have a billowing smoke, right? You know, if you've got meat on it, and, or if you've got all the right kind of 
the ingredients on it and stuff. Um, and the, it just pours out of, um, of, of that. That's kind of what's going on, right? Um, a few years ago, I remember I was going to smoke a brisket, and I put in a lot of hickory and stuff into my big green egg. And the smoke was pouring out like crazy. My neighbors ran over, scared to death our house was on fire. <laughs> no, it's just, no, OK. They got used to me and my, my little fire starters in the backyard. But um, that's that. And then the other word is lapid, which is the torch. But it actually is the word that is used in Exodus chapter 20, where it's the giving of the t God comes down on Mount Sinai. And guess what he comes down in? Lightning and billowing smoke and fire. This is the God. So what's happening here is. God is showing up as like a lightning strike, so bright. We had lightning this morning, right? But that was staying in place and with the billowing smoke around, passed between the pieces. And Abraham was watching the searing, lightning-like presence. And then God reiterates or enacts his promise and is saying, no. Abraham, may this happen to me if I don't keep my word to you. May my immortality become mort mortal. May my life, that I am the life, become death. May my immutable presence become mutable. And what does Abraham do in all this? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. God is basically saying in this text, no matter what your doubts are about me or your doubts are about you, whether you're going to be able to keep this thing, I'm going to take it. Both sides of the equation. It's not a deal. It's a promise straight out. God is saying, I'm going to pay the penalty if I break this covenant. I'm going to pay the penalty if you don't keep it. And you're going like, how in the world? Abraham probably was like, I don't understand. How does this happen? We have the luxury of seeing from the New Testament Gospels back into this story just a little more. And we, it's no coincidence that in Mark chapter 15, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, that it says this, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour that darkness and deep dread that Abraham faced is now upon Jesus himself. And how Isaiah speaks about the coming servant of God and how he would take care of things that no one else could. In Isaiah 53, 8, he says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And so as for his generation who considered, he was cut off from the land. He was cut. He was cut out, just like those animals were cut. The Lord of life faces death. He keeps his word. He is the curse. Jesus experienced everything, all our failures, everything to make this covenant for sure, no matter what. Abraham was astounded at this type of commitment. 
And yet that's exactly what Paul says happened in the book of Galatians. This is what it says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of who? Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's been God's plan all along. God's answer and assurance is, I'm going to make sure it's going to happen. Here's my promise to you. And I'm going to even go through death to give you this life. So, so what is really the next? What difference does this make? I've already addressed a little bit of it when I talked about the difference between this and religion. And I'm going to just say it more clearly even now. There is no other religion like this. None. There is no religion on the face of this earth with anything like this. And don't tell me all religions are just the same. They are not. Religions have either usually an impersonal divine force behind them, which means basically there's no other to really, uh, it's just the sameness in one sense, and that won't do anything like this God promises. Or there is a personal God in some faiths, but who stays above and beyond and will never face suffering or anything. No, he just stays above it and just watches. There isn't anything like this. No other faith comes close to saying that no matter what you do, no matter what I do, I'm going to make a covenant with you. That if you enter into a covenant with this God, you are saved by sheer grace. There is nothing like it. There is nothing for you to do. You don't have to walk between the pieces. You don't have to do anything to fulfill any qualifying. God has qualified you. God has chosen you. It's a full grace religion. Okay? And as a result, this gives us what I call a certain hope. So in the book of Hebrews, it talks about a number of these Old Testament stories. And it refers, it, it says this, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater one whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Amen. Yeah, anchor. Isn't that interesting? You know, anchors are important. Um, when I've gone fishing and other stuff on little lakes up in Michigan or anywhere I've gone, you don't think you need an anchor until what? until you do. And it's usually when there's a storm coming or a very strong wind and you could be endangered. Then the anchor becomes important. A lot of people, I think, in this life are kind of walking through without an anchor. And they think it's OK, because things are going smoothly until it doesn't. And there's always a time that it doesn't. And then it's like, what are you anchored on? And what Hebrews is saying, you can try to find anything else as an anchor, as certain and sure, it ain't. I don't care how much you have invested in the stock market, what your 
5013, I don't care whatever numbers you put after it, the securities are not secure, <laughs> right? Nations are, ev nothing else in life is, why? Because everything is contingent and dependent on something else. But this one, this God, this Jesus, is not dependent on anything or anyone. He's the king who needs nothing and who can make a sure and certain promise and fulfill it every time. I don't know if you realize this. We're living on this little marble of a ball called Earth hurtling through space. <laughs> and if we don't hit anything, even then, you know, and we've had a few near misses in the last few years, I guess, or, you know, of asteroids and stuff. There is still something that's going to happen. There's a little trap door below each one of our lives called death that's going to open at some point in time. And you might go like, ooh, this is pretty dark. But it's true. And are you saying you're going to find your certainty and security in having a master's degree? Or, um, you know, your, yeah, or anything else? It's only in Jesus Christ. He's the anchor of your life. And that's why Abraham said, or it says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day, for this time together. Uh, we're amazed. There is no one like you. You are the king in need of nothing, and yet you choose to have us, that to want us, and then to promise to do what we couldn't do. Or anyone else. You didn't have to, but you chose to promise. You chose this promise to Abraham to show us who you are, your character, your fullness, because you wanted us so much. And we thank you, Lord. And we know the story of Abraham is our story. We lift up today those who um, need your uh, healing touch. We think of Mike, who will be undergoing surgery later this week, Lord, for... Um, tonsillar cancer. We pray your healing there and to draw him closer to you. We lift up to you, Bob, up in North Carolina. Thank you for bringing him home from the hospital. And we just ask you to encourage him and draw him. He knows his anchor is in you. It's not in his health. It's not in his family even, um, but it's in you. And you are the anchor of his soul. Lord God, um, we offer this day just a word of thanks for our fathers. How, how they showed us in, yes, incomplete, imperfect ways, but they still, the best they could do is to show how to follow you, Lord, to depend on you and to rely on you. And we thank you for the men of faith who've been in our lives, whether they are our biological fathers or others, Lord, that truly have modeled for us the way to live, the way to serve, the way to love. Um, may we become those kind of models for others as well, Lord God. All these things we lift to you today, Lord. We just thank you for who you are, what you've done, and how you've promised, and we're astounded at what you did for Abraham and therefore for us. Bless our time, Lord, as we prepare for um, 
giving of ourselves and our offering, as well as receiving you, Lord Jesus, in the, uh, the Lord's Supper. We pray that you would bring, you know, bring us to repentance for any sins that we have done this week. We know that if we say we'd have no sin, we're just deceiving ourselves. Your truth would not be in us, but we confess our sins, Lord God. And you forgive us our sins. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For this we thank you, Lord. So, Lord, we offer all these things to you as we offer ourselves today. All this in your name, dear Jesus. Amen. Amen.